uh, as it relates to next week, David Beakley is an extraordinary man of God. He is somebody that I want to be like. He, he, he loves the Lord. And as I shared, and I think I've shared this previously, he, his heart is uh, to, to take the gospel uh, and to train up pastors in South Africa. And um, he'll share more about what that ministry looks like. But he's basically said, you know, I'm, I'm, I've not come for a mission trip or for a mission stint. I, I've, I've gone to South Africa to die there if the Lord wills, if that's what the Lord has. And I just um, am so encouraged, and, and my wife was blessed, uh, as all you ladies were, that got a chance to hear Carol speak. So you do not want to miss next Sunday. I want to beg you to be here so you can just um, hear him preach. We'll be so blessed to sit under his teaching of the Word of God. Well, we're going to go ahead and resume a study that we started last week. Please open up your Bibles to Psalm 32 this morning. And last Sunday, we had an opportunity to look at the opening five verses of Psalm 32, and it was very fitting because it prepared our hearts for communion that we celebrated during the service. We live in a sin-filled world, and by nature, we're born with deceptive hearts that are beating inside of our chests. And as a result, we have made foolish and sinful decisions over the course of our lives. Everyone has. And there's a good chance that some of those decisions even involve us carrying guilt and shame as a result. Are we to carry this guilt and shame with us for the rest of our lives? What would God have us do? Are we supposed to live in regret and live as the world would try to say, oh, you need to forgive yourself. How are we to handle this? And this is where Psalm 32 and the instruction from the Lord come to our rescue. The opening verses that we uh, focused on last week provided three insights that we um, learned from, from David so that we also, like David, could savor the sweetness of forgiveness. The opening two verses allowed us to see that David's heart was captivated by the blessings of repentance and confession. And like David, when we understand the magnitude of our sin and our offense against God, it allows us also to savor the sweetness of the forgiveness that only God can provide. The second insight came in verses 3 and 4, where David helped us to understand the foolishness of suffering in silence. As believers, we're not designed, and I shared this last week, to harbor unconfessed sin. The sooner we confess our sin, the sooner the Lord is able to allow us to be restored and our spiritual unity and fellowship with him can be restored. Verse 5 shared the third insight, which is to confess our sins for forgiveness. When we take ownership of our sin, when we're responsible for it and appropriately confess it to God and to others, this opens the door to forgiveness and reconciliation to take place. After David shares these three insights on repentance and confession in verses 1 through 5, he now provides six exhortations so that we can be free from guilt and shame and that we can walk and experience the freedom of forgiveness. Let's read uh, these verses. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 6, and we'll read through the end to 11 as we conclude our study of this amazing psalm this morning. 
We're going to start in verse 6 of Psalm 32, where it reads, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Well, as the sermon title indicates in the bulletin, this is David's counsel on confession. And there are six exhortations that we're going to be able to see from the corresponding verses. In verse 6, David gives us an exhortation, which is to pray with a sense of urgency as it relates to confessing our sin. Verse 7 encourages us to take comfort in the security that the Lord provides through confession. In verse 8, we're exhorted to be teachable, while verse 9 serves as an exhortation not to be resistant to instruction. The fifth exhortation comes in verse 10, which is to stay off the world's path and to trust the Lord's. And the sixth exhortation allows us to exalt God's work in our lives. So in in these final verses, it's David's counsel on confession. It's six exhortation, as the sermon proposition indicates, that uh, so that we can be free from guilt and the shame of sin and celebrate the Lord's forgiveness in our walks. Well, as we learned last week, the fact that David had experienced God's gracious forgiveness despite his deceptive and destructive sins. This week we'll see that this qualifies him, enables him really to speak to confession to others. His first exhortation is to pray with a sense of urgency. Look at the beginning of verse 6. In light of the insights that David's just shared in in verses 1 through 5, he now writes, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. When I, I, I'm going to share just the open uh, confessions of a pastor. When, when I first read these verses, uh, for a long time, I, they were misunderstood in my mind. I, I, I was not able to uh, correctly link the pronouns within the verse. And I want to make sure that if there's anyone who was like me, uh, sees the connection. And so here David exhorts us to pray with a sense of urgency when it comes to our confession. And few have known the severe consequences of harboring unconfessed sin more than David. His exhortation is for everyone who is godly, or that word can also be translated faithful. And David doesn't want us to make the same mistake that he made. And it's common due to our sin nature to keep silent about our sin. And last week we considered... I offered 10 reasons why we can harbor unconfessed sin. But in general, our sin nature makes us slow and oftentimes reluctant to appropriate the grace of God through confession. 
It is a means of God's sanctifying grace that leads us to confession. And as one theologian shares, we may also learn from this, that David obtained forgiveness not by the mere act of confession, as some speak, but by faith and prayer. Here he directs believers to the same means of obtaining it, bidding them betake themselves to prayer, which is the true sacrifice of faith. What is this theologian ultimately saying? Confession is a true demonstration of prayer and faith. And it allows a believer to express their utter dependence upon the Lord for mercy. It's an exercise of ongoing faith and trust in the Lord. And it reflects the heart of those continually seeking the Lord. The same theologian finishes with this insight. Further, we are taught that in David, God gave an example of his mercy, which may not only extend to us all, but may also show us how reconciliation is to be sought. The words everyone serve for the confirmation of every godly person. But the psalmist at the same time shows that no one can obtain the hope of salvation except by prostrating himself as a suppliant before God because all without exception stand in need of his mercy. We all need his mercy, amen? Amen, we do. And David serves as a great example crying out to God for mercy in faith by his prayer and confession of sin. In verse 6, David also seems to indicate that the sooner we confess our sin in a spirit of urgency, that it can minimize the distance or disunity that we experience from broken fellowship with God. And in some instances, when our sin extends beyond our broken fellowship with other people. And this gives us some deeper insight into the words that follow in verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you, and then check out this next phrase, in a time when you may be found. This portion of the verse has potential to cause some confusion. It gives the impression that somehow God could abandon believers, does it not? Like in, in a time where you may be found? What does David mean by this? The best way to understand it is in proximity to fellowship. Sin creates distance and disunity in our fellowship with God. And if we're unrepentant and living in sin as believers, this can allow for great distance in our relationship with God to be experienced. So much so that we can even feel like David felt. God was remote. David expressed it this way in a parallel passage in Psalm 51 in verses 11 and 12. He says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Sin, and and David's sin had, had made him feel like a castaway. He felt out of the presence of the Lord. He felt distant from God. So much so that even the joy of his salvation seemed as if it had completely disappeared. And we can have a similar experience if we do not pray and confess our sin with a sense of urgency. In fact, the more time that elapses that we, we let it go, the, 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 the more distance and the more weightiness by divine design that we can feel. God can also remove the joy of our salvation or allow it to happen because of our sin. And 
treasure of our fellowship with God may even appear like a disappearing flame. You got any campers out there besides the Furcos? Everyone knows that anyone who's ever been on a camping trip knows uh, uh, an overnight camping trip, let me qualify it, knows the importance of a good campfire, right? To, to draw near, it, one, it provides two things, really. It provides light for us to see. And it also provides tremendous warmth. And there's nothing, I, I think, better on an overnight camping trip than drawing close to the burning flame of a fire because it, it warms us. And what can happen is when we sin... That, that it creates distance. And this contrast between a, a fire that is burning brightly and shinily that we can, we can come up and we can enjoy proximity is quite different compared to a fire that is barely burning or one where the, the coals are reduced to a simmer. There is no light. There is no warmth. And this is a consequence that we can be exposed to spiritually when we do not pray with a sense of urgency to confess our sin. Our spiritual fire will start to fade and our fellowship with the Lord will become cold and distant. And David's point is to minimize the broken fellowship by praying to God at a time of finding, when there's proximity there and when he's close, not allowing unconfessed sin to create such distance and despair. And there's also another great source of encouragement that comes at the end of verse 6, which again is often misinterpreted. David offers this word picture in verse 6. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach them. Reach him. Okay? If you are like me, um, it's possible to understand that the they is a reference to godly people. And maybe him is referring to God when we look at and try to figure out the antecedents to these pronouns. Some have even proposed that this is a symbolic reference to the flood of God's judgment seen in Genesis 6, urging unbelievers to repent. But the antecedent to the pronoun they isn't referring to unbelievers nor is it even referring to godly believers in verse 6. It's actually the antecedent of raging waters right next to it in the verse. This is what it's saying. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. Does everyone see that? They will not reach him. The flood of great waters, the great waters will not reach him. Pronoun him is not pointing to God, and we know this because it's not capitalized, and because grammatically in the original language it's pointing back to the godly earlier in the verse. And David uses this same word picture in other places, most notably in Psalm 69 and verses 1 and 2, where he writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. Literally, come to my soul. I have sunk in deep mire. He's in deep doo-doo. David was. His life, his sins, his problems, it caused, he was in deep mire. And there is no foothold. And I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. And here, David again is using the picture of the flood as he is 
as a spiritual illustration in 32.6. It, it offers us a picture of being overwhelmed spiritually by the surrounding circumstances of his life. You know, we should be encouraged just as David was because he recognized that even in the midst of a self-inflicted flood, which his sin invited to come in and encroach on his life, that the God of mercy in salvation will preserve us. John Calvin said this about this phrase in verse 6. And just to give you a heads up, his vernacular is a little uncommon. So, so you got to listen closely with this. This is what he says about, about this phrase. The meaning is that although the deep whirlpools of death may encompass us round on every side, we ought not to fear that they will swallow us up but rather believe that we shall be safe and unhurt if we only betake ourselves to the mercy of God. We are thus emphatically taught that the godly shall have certain salvation even in death, provided they betake themselves to the sanctuary of grace. Under the term flood are denoted all those dangers from which there appears no means of escape. What an encouragement for you and I as we consider the preserving work of God in David's life and in our lives as well, which sets us up nicely for our second exhortation. Yet before we move on, I want to emphasize this. This doesn't negate the point that David is making. There still needs to be a sense of urgency to confess our sin, even though God's going to preserve us. Somebody might say, well, if God's going to preserve me, then there's really no need to confess my sin. I got all the time that I need. That's a mistake. God wants us to confess our sin because God desires for us to be near to him. God desires and wants fellowship with us. And he desires that we also would want fellowship with him. That we would desire to be close and to have proximity to him. When we pray and confess our unconfessed sin with urgency, this can also close the floodgate of consequences that can come pouring into our lives as a result. Right? We can minimize collateral damage. God graciously allows that to be the case, so don't wait. We got to go to him. The application's pretty straightforward. Is there any unconfessed sin in my life or in your life that needs to be brought to the Lord? Are we developing the discipline of confessing our sin to the Lord on a regular basis? Are you regularly confessing your sin to those whom you have sinned against? And this is huge in our marriages and in our families. It's it's huge. We sin and we make selfish choices all the time. I know, I know I do. I know I do. Victoria will come up. She'll give you a testimony if you need to hear one. We're sinners. And confessing and seeking forgiveness, it needs to be cultivated in our homes. Are, are we shepherding our children in an age-appropriate and spiritually healthy way to confess their sins? And to seek forgiveness from their siblings, from us, when they sin against us. 
parents, are we modeling the, the, the gospel and living the, the gospel for them to see? As parents, are we doing spiritual checkups to make sure that our kids aren't harboring any unconfessed sin? Parents of teenagers is, is huge. Or of, these, of those even in elementary, probe, find out, ask, seek, find out. You know, they, they know they're not supposed to hang out with so-and-so because you, you said that you don't want them to have that person as a friend. And you've explained the reasons why. Because of the influence, maybe. 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good morals. You've, you've, you've broken it down for them. But you know what? Maybe they've disregarded your counsel. Maybe they're, 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 they could be sinning against you, and God can use you. you. You ask questions. Draw it out. And again, we have to continue to lead by example in this regard. The first exhortation is to, pr- to pray and confess with a sense of urgency. The second exhortation is to take comfort in the security that the Lord provides through confession. Verse 7 says this, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. Here David recognizes the security and protection that the Lord gave to him despite his own sinfulness. And he shares three beautiful expressions in this verse. First, he says to God, you are my hiding place. And those familiar with David's life know that he spent the majority of it on the run. He was supposed to succeed Saul as king. And what does Saul do? Well, he initially wasn't so bad, but then... But then things progress to the point where he actually is putting a bounty out, a contract on on David's life. And David's forced to live on the run. He often spent weeks at a time in enemy territory or in the caves by the Dead Sea. And as a result, David was often alone in the dark while he was on the run. And it was during such circumstances that God allowed David to see his faithful and preserving hand. David learned to be fully dependent on God during this time. And the Lord not only protected him physically, but helped him to grow in faith and to be protected spiritually. David also shares this in Psalm 3120, which is just the next psalm back. If you want to look there at verse 20 of Psalm 31. When speaking of those who fear the Lord, David writes, you hide them in the secret place of your presence. How beautiful is that verse? You hide them in the secret place of your presence and from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. As we wrestle with our sin through confession, the Lord also serves as our hiding place. As New Testament believers, our sins are nailed to the cross. And the gospel helps us to see that the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed, he's our refuge. He is our hiding place. And as we learned last week, God has factored in our confession of sin kind of as spiritual maintenance in our walks. We need to be faithful to confess our sin. And when we do so, we don't get redressed in a new righteousness. 
But as I shared last week, we get renewed in the imputed righteousness that's already credited to our account through the work of Christ, through the glory of the gospel. We are affirming that Christ is our hiding place when we regularly confess our sins as New Testament Christians. David shares a second expression that helps him to take comfort in the security that the Lord provides through confession. Look at the middle of verse 7. You preserve me from trouble. The verb preserve can also be translated keep watch or watch over to protect or just as it's translated here, preserve. And the word translated trouble can also be translated distress or anxiety. David was sharing that the Lord preserved him from distress and anxiety when he confessed his sins. And he says this directly in Psalm 38, verses 17 and 18, when he wrote this, another psalm of penitence and confession. He says, For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Here he builds the bridge for us to see the connection between anxiety and unconfessed sin. So many people, too, just living in a place of unconfessed sin. Of course, believers living in that state. And they wonder why their world is filled with anxiety and worry. Because they are reaping what they sow. And if we're believers, right, we can function in a state of unbelief as well. And we can be drawn back to our unbelief. And we also can have anxiety multiplied within us. Because we have not confessed our sins. In Psalm 32, 7, David is acknowledging that it's God who preserves us despite ourselves and that we can take comfort in the security that the Lord provides to us, not only through prayer and confession, but also by God being patient and long-suffering as he waits for us to confess our sins. The third expression is perhaps the most beautiful, in my opinion. Look at the end of verse 7. David writes, You surround me with songs of deliverance. It was very common for the nation of Israel to sing songs of deliverance. Moses and the sons of Israel, even after the Exodus, back in Exodus 15, you can go back, there's uh, songs of deliverance that are recorded in that chapter. And then there are other instances where we see other people who have recorded songs. Uh, Deborah and Barak and, not Obama, um, Judge of Israel, Okay, uh, Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter 5. And then, of course, we can look to the Psalms and we see a, a host of songs that have been written that are songs of, of deliverance. And David, who was also a very gifted musician, even records some of them. Psalm 108 is, is one such example. And as David took comfort in the security that the Lord provides through confession, is this caused his heart to think about those songs of deliverance. David was aware of God's faithfulness to Israel, even despite their sinfulness, as well as his. And the compass of David's life always pointed north back 
to God's faithfulness. Whether he was standing in victory over the body of Goliath or whether he was feeling defeated because of the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. David realized that the Lord faithfully surrounded him with songs of deliverance. And what a takeaway for us. The Lord has delivered us from our sins. Amen? Right? We, we, sing, we sing songs of deliverance on Sunday mornings. We worship, and, and, and it flows out of us a heart of worship. Practically, he's delivered you and I from, from our pride, from our foolishness, from envy and strife. And just being candid, I think that some of our songs go unwritten, don't they? They go unwritten because we're not like David and we, we haven't taken the time to, to meditate on the reality of all that God has delivered us from. Spiritually healthy to do that. And, you know, time, right? It's time. It takes time. That's why having that quiet time with the Lord is so precious and so important that you can... We can, we can meditate on the reality and, and, and the songs of deliverance that he's written for, for our personal lives. A commentator added this insight. In verses 3 and 4, David was seen hiding from God. But in verse 7, he is hiding in God because God had indeed delivered him. Beautiful picture. Our third exhortation is to be teachable. In verse 8, David records, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. You would think that this would be a pretty simple verse to understand, but there are a lot of questions that come up amongst commentators about this verse. Some wonder whether this is David speaking in the first person for himself as a shepherd and leader of God's people, why others believe that it, he's quoting Yahweh like Old Testament prophets did on occasion. One way that you can tell what view your Bible translation takes is by looking at the, the person, first person pronoun my in the verse, right? I is the same for both David and God if they were speaking in the first person, right? But the my, if the my is capital, capitalized, that means that your translation, which in the ESV's case, it's lowercase, so that means that those translators felt like it was David who was the one speaking. If you have the New American Standard, it's capitalized. So they, those translators believe that it is actually... Um, God speaking in this verse. And it's, the the commentators are are truly split on this. The King James Version has it in the lower case, while the New King James Version has it capitalized. Okay? And so it's just one of those things. We, you know, you wish, I think we all wish that there was more details. Maybe, just maybe, if in the original language it had been written in Mandarin, we'd have a chance because I'm pretty sure one of the 257,000 symbols in the alphabet, is that how many or was I off? Okay, no, for those that are, man, there's a lot of symbols. And I bet you that there would have been a specific symbol that we could know for sure. But, but commentators are split on this. 
And in the end, you have to make a decision about who it is that's speaking in verse 8, as there are good arguments on both sides. After considering the arguments, I, I've, the arguments, I found myself leaning toward the majority of the commentators who believe that it's best to assume David as the speaker. And majority rules should be taken strongly into consideration, and here's why. Because basically this is how um, the, the books of the Bible uh, were, were affirmed by spirit-filled people who affirm which books should have been in the Bible. In fact, we learned in seminary that the only test of true canonicity is the testimony of God the Holy Spirit to the authority of his own word. And so spirit-filled people decided which books needed to be included, and that's how we got our 66 books in the Bible. So the majority of people who, born-again people, and not all, but many are, are affirming that it's David, but as we'll see as we progress in the verse, there, there, there are reasons that you can see things from the other side. And for those of you who might be interested in doing a little bit more study in this area, I have a, a link that allows you to see all the Bible commentaries side by side. And if you email me and you want to scratch that itch a little bit more, go ahead and email me. I'll send you the link and you can check it out for yourself. But I'm teaching this from David's perspective, okay? First, David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. Here, the godly man of verse 6 is being addressed. And David helps us to see that such a man was not beyond the need of instruction and teaching since he was himself liable to grievous sins, right? So he's, he's looking out for the godly man. Likewise, we need to be teachable. And David's instruction is seen from the beginning to the end. And here's a brief overview of David's instruction for us up to verse 6. The opening two verses instruct us about David's cleansing from sin. There's only one way for us to have the guilt and the shame of our sin removed, and that is by confessing our sins to God for forgiveness. Verses 3 and 4 instruct us about David's concealment of sin. So the first verse is David's cleansing, and this in verses 3 and 4, David's concealment of sin. And it teaches us on the flood of consequences that overwhelmed him when he refused to confess. And Proverbs 28, 13 is certainly a verse that would that both David and the Lord, depending on whichever perspective you want to take, they would both have us focus on Proverbs 28.13, which says, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Unconfessed sin prevents us from prospering and invites a flood of serious consequences that can spill over into every area of our lives, financially, emotionally, physically, mentally, but most significantly, spiritually. Psalm 32.5 instructs us with David's confession of sin. And here David teaches us about the blessing of God's forgiveness that awaited when he took responsibility for his sin. He no longer concealed it. He acknowledged it and confessed it. And likewise, David teaches other believers to follow his faithfulness and not his foolishness. And this brings us full circle back to verses 6 through 11. And why am I sharing all of this with you as an overview again? Because I want you to see the summary of his instruction in this psalm. 
And that's why he writes what he did in in verse 8. The entire psalm is intended to instruct and teach you and I in the way in which we should go. The next phrase shares David's heart behind the instruction. Look at the end of verse 8. He writes, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And this is the phrase that I think the, the other side who would take um, the Lord is the one who's speaking here. This is the one that I think encourages them the most to, to, to take this view. David is basically saying, I will counsel and watch over you. That's, that's what he's saying in this verse. I will counsel and watch over you. And this reflects the heart of David as an under-shepherd for the nation of Israel, as he did provide oversight and watched over the people of Israel. A, a proverb that um, David, w- and David was also a, very, a real shepherd, okay? He had that experience. And one of the Proverbs that would have been uh, well-known in his thinking would have been Proverbs 27, 23, that says, Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. And though this proverb is literally speaking to animal shepherds, um, you know, taking care of, of animals with a watchful eye, there's a spiritual principle that we can apply as under-shepherds in the church. We need to be on the lookout for each other spiritually and make sure that our brothers and sisters are not falling into temptation, that, that they're, they're not living in sin, that they're not harboring unconfessed sin. And this is what David is sharing when he exhorts us in verse 8. David's counsel on confession provides six exhortations so that we can be free from the guilt and shame of sin and celebrate forgiveness in our walks. There's a fourth exhortation that comes in verse 9. Don't be resistant to instruction. Here's how David expresses it in verse 9. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Both horses and mules have their own unique reputation. And I actually grew up riding horses back in rural Illinois. So I was exposed to both animals. Um, neighbors had mules. We didn't have mules. We only we had horses. My twin brother and I even had our own little Shetland ponies that we grew up riding before we started to ride the horses. And we got to learn about a lot about horses. And this, let me tell you something about horses. They are hard to control even when tamed, let alone untamed. And I think we are all familiar with the, the story and, the, and the, the reputation that's notorious for the mule, right? They're stubborn, stubborn creatures. And King David was like a wild horse when he rushed into his sin with Bathsheba. And he was like a stubborn mule when he was resistant to confessing his sin. And as a result, both of these animals need to be controlled by bit and bridle. And David mentions both to illustrate what not not to be. Don't be like the untamed impulsive horse with no self-control, giving no heed to instruction. And likewise, don't be like the mule, refusing to confess your sin. 
Otherwise, you know what will happen? God will need to use the bit and bridle on you, my friend, on us, believer. He will need to use it on us. A bridle was a harness that was typically made out of leather, although some of them are made out of rope, and they go over the the head of the horse. And basically connected to the bridle is a little bit, and it's a a smoothed-out little metal piece, a few inches long, and it goes inside the horse or the mule's mouth. Okay, and this there's reins that go back from the, uh, that are connected to the bridle, and this is what allows the horse to be controlled by pressing down on their tongue, and also by pulling back on the creases of their mouth. If you want to gain a sense of what that looks like, just give yourself a little oh, a fish hook like that, right there. Pull back real hard ones. Real, uh, real suddenly uh, on your mouth. Not here right now. You're going to have to wait till you get home. Try this one out. But yeah, a couple people leaning over to fish hook each other, right? Um, but, the, but, there's, but there's pain that will come as a result. And oftentimes when mules and horses are resistant, force is required and it's needed to be used so that they come near or they'll, they'll obey. And David's warning is clear. He's saying, don't be a mule. If we're using the King James Version, we could amplify that even more. Don't be a mule. He's saying, don't be resistant to the instruction that I am providing in this psalm about sin and confession. As David learned the hard way, God has his own bit and bridle to use if and when we are disobedient. Proverbs 26.3 says, A whip is for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. We are foolish when we are resistant to the instruction of Psalm 32. And the writer of Hebrews also reminds us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, and time's not going to permit us to go there, but later on you should check it out, that persistent disobedience by the godly will lead to the chastening hand of God. And you know what it is? He loves us. He loves us. He loved David so much that he wasn't going to allow David to continue in his sin. And he wasn't going to allow David to continue harboring unconfessed sin. So it brought in the chastening hand of God because he loved him. And we can expect the same from our Lord in our day too. He'll do the same thing for us. David's counsel on confession. Again, six exhortations that can free us from guilt and shame. And so we can celebrate forgiveness in our walks. The fifth exhortation comes in verse 10. Stay off the world's path and trust the Lord's. Verse 10 reads, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Excuse me. Here David provides another exhortation which is to trust the Lord. But before he does that, he, he includes this, what I would call this, this little admonition up front when he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. And what was true for David is also true for us. David could look around in his day and he could see a, a world that was being ravaged by sin and being overwhelmed by the consequences of sin. 
And the same is true for us. The wicked and unbelieving live on a path of unforgiveness. And a big reason for this is that the world has no true understanding of their magnitude of sin and the, the, the consequences of continually sinning against a holy God. And as a result, they get to reap what they sow. A broad path filled with many sorrows. One commentator shares this perspective. This psalm has provided every believer with what he or she so desperately needs. Straight talk about sin. Our world has provided us with a skewed view of sin, and it has penetrated Christian thinking in the church. Let us take counsel from this psalm and be reminded. Man calls it an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder. God calls it blasphemy. Man calls it chance. God calls it choice. Man calls it error. God calls it enemy. Man calls it a fascination. God calls it a fatality. Man calls it an infirmity. God calls it an iniquity. Man calls it luxury. God calls it leprosy. Man calls it liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it trifle. God calls it tragedy. Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it weakness. God calls it willfulness. The sorrows are multiplied for those who do not trust the Lord and who adopt the world's broad path and its minimalistic and distorted view of sin. And even as believers, again, our fallen sin nature tempts us to go back to unbelief. It does. And it will tempt us to think that sin is no big deal. It's not a big deal. You want to entertain your sexual loss? You, you, want, to go, you want to go see Fifty Shades of Grey? Go, go, ahead, go ahead and see it. Go ahead and see it. It's, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. You want to get married and divorced? Two, three, four, five times? You deserve to be happy. Just, just who, who am I to judge? Go ahead, it's, it's no big deal. You want to marry somebody of the same gender? Go ahead. Again, who, who am I to judge? It's only fair. Who am I to tell you that you're wrong? It's no big deal. This is the world, right? This is the world that we're living in. And, this is the, and, and they've been handed over as a result of their unbelief. And they're living in the consequences of their unbelief as they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And they keep pushing it down. And the world is miserable. And verse 10 shares their sorrows are plentiful and this is why proclaiming Christ and pro proclaiming the gospel is so important. God has entrusted you and I with that message of reconciliation. God has called us to, to go out and to encourage them to repent and to have them confess their sinfulness and, and to see it so that they'll seek his forgiveness and be reconciled. Just like us, there are others 
that need to be pulled out of the mire of this world. And the gospel calls all of us as New Testament believers to stay off the old path of the world and to trust the Lord's. More specifically, it says this, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. The godly man, the godly woman, trusts completely in the Lord. He trusts the Lord's ways, just like the prophet Isaiah declared in Isaiah 55, that his ways are so much higher. His thoughts are so much higher. And if I can borrow the text, a very familiar text of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, he trusts the Lord with all his heart. He doesn't lean on his own understanding. He doesn't lean on, certainly not going to lean on the understanding of this world or the understanding of someone else. He acknowledges the Lord and the Lord gives him straight paths. We need to trust the Lord's paths. What happens when we do? Verse 10 gives us the answer. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. What a beautiful picture in this word in the Hebrew, this, lo- this word for loving kindness, which I-, I know our church has been talked about before, is hesed in, in the Hebrew. And it's talking about God's grace, God's mercy, God's compassion, God's love, God's kindness. And it's all rolled in to this single covenantal term that expresses his commitment to you, to you and to me. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. What's it say? It shall surround him. We're surrounded by it. Well, there's a sixth and final exhortation, and I will finish on time. Here we go. Verse 11. David finishes the psalm with verse 11. And this exhortation is to exalt God's work in your life. David writes, and and this is similar to how he started the psalm. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy all you who are upright in heart. Perhaps the greatest way to exalt God's work in your life is to follow through on what he's enabled us to do. He's allowed us to maintain unity with him. He's allowed us to graciously maintain unity with each other. He's enabled us to praise him for his ongoing, redemptive and sanctifying work in our lives. And this verse is marked with three expressive verbs for believers as they consider God's work in their lives. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. And this is not an exhortation that is just calling us to make a vain effort to be happy when we don't feel like it. But they are impulses that flow out of a transformed heart that want us to rejoice, to shout for joy, to celebrate. And it's God's work. It's his work. 
It's that flow chart that I shared in last week's sermon. It is God's work and his kindness that leads us to repentance. That moves us to the place where we will take ownership of our sin and that we will confess it to him and to those we've offended. And we will seek their forgiveness. And we will ask them to ask God to forgive us and he will release us from the debt. We will ask people to forgive us and they will release us from the debt. And what comes as a result of the sweet, sweet and savory fruit of forgiveness and reconciliation? Fill your garden with the, the, the fruit. Cultivate the fruit of forgiveness in your life. Cultivate it. Do not allow your heart to harbor sin. One pastor I listened to online said that he takes people who have all their sins and has them list them out, and then the, he, he flushes it down the toilet. Flushes it. They're gone. And then in the counseling session, when they want to go ahead and start talking about the sin, he go, takes them back to the toilet, and he says, reach back down in there and try to grab it out. Reach back out there and try to pull it out from where it is right now. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing when you want to dwell on it. Very graphic picture, I know. But it's true. It's true. Our hearts can unite with David's to celebrate the freedom of forgiveness in his life, in our own life, and in the lives of all of God's people. And church, I'm thankful to be at a gospel-exalting, Christ-adoring church where we have such sweet fellowship that allows us to do that very thing. Praise his holy name. My wife shared with me, and I'm going to close in prayer, but I'm actually going to read a prayer from, that, that she featured from, or shared with me on the Valley of Vision. I'm just giving her, I'm footnoting her, right? Um, I'm going to read this prayer, and we're going to close our service, so service our uh, worship team, if you want to come up. But this is what we're praying. Confession and petition. Holy Lord, we have sinned times without number and have been guilty of pride and unbelief, of failure to find your mind in your word, of neglect to seek you in our daily lives. Our transgressions and shortcomings present us with a list of accusations. But we bless you that they will not stand against us, for all have been laid on Christ. Go on to subdue our corruptions and grant us grace to live above them. Let not the passions of the flesh nor lustings of the mind bring our spirit into subjection, but do rule over us in liberty and power. We thank you that Many of our prayers have been refused. We have asked amiss and do not have. We have prayed from lust and been rejected. We have longed for Egypt and been given a wilderness. Go on with your patient work, answering no to our wrongful prayers and fitting us to accept it. Purge us from every false desire, every base aspiration, everything contrary to your rule. We thank you for your wisdom and your love for all the acts of discipline to which we are subject, for sometimes putting us into the fiery furnace to refine our gold and remove our dross. No trial is so hard to bear as a sense of sin. 
if you should give us choice to live in pleasure and keep our sins or to have them burnt away with trial, give us sanctified affliction. Deliver us from every evil habit and every accretion of our former sins and everything that dims the brightness of your grace in us, everything that prevents us taking delight in you. Then we shall bless you, God of Jacob, for helping us to be upright. And Father, we do rejoice in you. We celebrate the righteousness that has been imputed to us. We need your help to live righteously. And you've enabled us to do that very thing. You've empowered us by your spirit. You've given us measures of grace. And we celebrate the reality and shout for joy just as David did at the conclusion of this psalm. We thank you for his humility and godly example to us. And we pray, Father, that you'll cultivate within us the ability to serve others by the example of the Christian lives that we live before them. We thank you for this beautiful psalm, Psalm 32. Ask that you'll bless us as we continue to meditate on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.